0: <laughs> In the dark is death and death is eternal darkness a vicious cycle may come at night And when the sun rises, more of us are gone. Respite lasts only fleeting hours, for the sun refuses to stay in the sky. As the fiery orb falls beneath the horizon, wails of the cold rise like howling winds. Their screams and moans fill the air with dread and promise. Finality, as each time the darkness surges, you're almost sure will be your last. When all traces of light have left the sky, dark shapes take to the streets. Those who watch from their windows are the first to go. Those who are smart, stay hidden, stay quiet, and most importantly, stay calm. Fear is like blood in the water to the irrigators. Strong emotions will bring them right to you, That's why I had to do it. He was going to get us both taken. My brother was always weak. Our parents favored him, coddled him like a baby. Look where it got him, where it almost got me. It's been so quiet here without him complaining. I might even sleep tonight without the stress of worrying if he is going to lose it or not. Chris wasn't made to survive something like this. I did him a kindness. He should be thanking me. It's strange. The blood has only just dried on my hands, but I can still feel the warmth of life flowing over them, purifying for us both. He, released from his life of torment, and I, his angel of mercy. Had I left him... Surely he'd have been taken this night, and his voice would join the harbinger's clamor. No, this way was better. It was quick. It was... angelic. He howled in the road like a madman until his voice cracked. It was a simple supply run, food and hygiene. I suppose the stress of this life became too much for him. At first, I just stared, frozen in panic at the thought that every dark terror would somehow be listening. Tears streamed down his face and into his open mouth as he bellowed until the air left his lungs, selfishly took a gasp and resumed. His malnourished body looked ready to snap under the tension of his clenched posture. I didn't even think, I just acted before I knew what I was going to do. My pocket knife was unfolded, and I was only a step away from his back. My hand moved all on its own to cover his mouth and pull him close to me, hold him tight. He still screamed under my hand, but didn't try to struggle. I was surprised at how easy the knife slid into his neck. I knew I'd hit the carotid artery as a river of warm blood flowed over my hand. His muffled scream turned into a gurgling whine of surprise under my palm. I held him there in our last embrace until his legs became weak. Slowly I lowered my brother to the ground. His bloodshot glacier blue eyes stared wildly into mine. His powerless hand reached up towards me as I kept his gaze kneeling over him. Bringing my forehead to his, I told him quietly and calmly not to worry, to just let it go. There isn't time to give him a proper burial this daylight. Tomorrow, for sure. Nightly checklist apartment building, all doors locked, all exits but two heavily barricaded, entrances used, sprinkled with sodium hydroxide my apartment, all windows covered with insulation and layered with clothing for sound dampening, heavy plywood over the top and sealed with duct tape to ensure no light escaping or visible exposure, door taped and sealed, sodium hydroxide in the hallway, barricade on the inside. Everything seems good for now, need more insulation for my bedroom, have to make sure they can't sense me. The harbinger's howl approaches, but I feel almost at peace that my brother won't be joining the sorrowful choir. I may even sleep tonight. So much has happened today. I woke up to the sun, which means two things. One, I slept through the night, and two, I've wasted daylight. The first order of business was to bury Chris. However, his body wasn't where I left it. Or, at least I thought that's where I left it. But there isn't time to waste. I raided cars in the area. Found a case of bottled water, four road flares, and a loaded handgun. Not much use against the Reapers, but I suppose I could use it on myself if the need arose. Oh, I almost forgot... I saved a family today. I knew there was a reason I'd survived. Conversation filled an alleyway near where I was gathering supplies. A little girl and her mom. Approaching cautiously, I peered around the corner and spotted them trying to get into the locked buildings. The little girl whining that she was hungry. That simply wouldn't do. I couldn't leave them like that waiting for a few minutes to make sure there weren't any surprise guests. I calmly walked into the alley, as if I hadn't known they were there. The woman grabbed her daughter and backed away, but there wasn't anywhere for them to go. Greeting them with my best winning smile, I looked at the little girl and said, You must be hungry. She groaned and licked her lips, looking towards her mother, who held her tight. I pulled a can of beans and a candy bar from my pack, I told her I'd trade them for information. The woman remained silent, but I could practically hear her stomach grumbling. It was the little girl who spoke up, hunger and naivety winning out against caution. She asked me what I wanted to know while staring at the meal. "'Tell me about the monsters,' I said. The little girl's eyes became wide with fear for a second but she swallowed and began to speak. She told me she knew they came at night, every night, that they take the people they find and that her mom says you don't want them to find you. The screaming people are the ones they found, she concluded. I saw one, she added, last night, right before the sun came up. This made my eyes open wide in surprise. I hadn't spoken to anyone who actually saw one, I asked her what they looked like. She shivered with the memory, but told me. Dark, with many legs. Long like a centipede, with two big arms ending in claws coming from its back. A long tail that ended in a point, and long feelers, she called them, that brushed against the ground and walls as it walked. She told me there were others, but that she had been too scared and didn't get a good look. That's okay, I told her. You've been more than helpful. Here, take the food you earned. I set it down and walked a few steps back, crouching down and waiting. They slowly approached the food and reached to take it. Since you've been so helpful, how about an extra can? I said, pulling more food from my bag. The little girl looked to her mother, and before she could look back at me, I pulled the handgun and fired into her forehead. Blood sprayed the mother's face, and I pointed at her head and pulled the trigger. A disappointing click responded instead of the loud bang. Ears still ringing, I could more see than hear the woman scream as she clutched her daughter, trying to shake her awake. I wanted to make it quick for them, but the old trusty knife always does the trick. I feel. good. I think I'd help these people find peace. Well, I know that at the very least I saved them from a terrible fate. If she saw the reapers like she claimed, they'll know it. Tonight, they'd have come for them both. It's better this way. They're lucky I was here to save them. People need me. I am their angel of mercy. I'll help them avoid the reaping. Broken glass streaked beautiful glares across the fluorescent lit room, pale, discolored apathetic of the environment it lay upon. Nothing more than a streak of green to indicate the evacuation protocol that had taken place moments prior. A strange evolution of the Yersinia pestis bacteria, the very same that had caused the near death of humanity on numerous occasions, was discovered not too long ago. This particular strain lacks a common element of Yersinia pestis diseases, in that it hides itself. As if replicating a prion, it burrows into the brain of the host and festers, creating massive memory leaks in many humans, the only warning sign allowed. Short-term memory loss is incredibly common and can happen without reason, so these were very swiftly dismissed by those afflicted. As soon as word of the disease spread, panic ensued. Doctors proclaimed it to be quite possibly the most dangerous and deadly plague humanity has ever witnessed. With today's ease of travel, it's not difficult for a disease to fester within a society, nor for it to transfer to others. Microbiologists claimed it to be from Siberia, a dangerous result of global warming. Initially frozen in permafrost, set free by no one else's hands but our own. The very first man who had the bacteria burrow into his brain supposedly died, and doctors listed the symptoms. They also stated the maturity of the bacteria when they found the man. It had developed what can only be described as a bomb of replicated bacteria in the host's brain, and it had spread like wildfire through him, torturing his lymph nodes creating blisters the size of baseballs that burst full of blood and pus. Doctors who had treated him claimed he was screaming, due in part to the fact that the bacteria had overwritten his blood pressure balance, allowing blood to freely flow into his head, but not back out. A red out. He coughed blood. His nose, eyes, and ears were supposedly bleeding profusely. A horror story, to be sure. After this... The population not only became wary, but suspicious of others. Now anyone was looking for any reason to report one another. With suspicion came distrust, and society quickly collapsed, leaving select sanctuary cities all around. If you were beyond the cities, you were beyond help. Treatment became an option, and proved unsuccessful. Nothing could seemingly assault this bacterium without serious consequences. In some instances, many men and women ended up becoming infected with worse and worse diseases in the hopes it would fight the strain in their mind. This merely succeeded at demolishing the remnants of America, most of Russia, and parts of Africa. Most people believed in vain that a much more deadly disease under the division of Ebola virus would be the cure. Their minds racked with panic, their body quivered in fear. They were all terrified to see someone who had been diagnosed. The diagnosis was called, at the time, Beugillis. Its name since changed to something more appropriate. The entirety of this took place over one year. This strain was responsible for the pneumonic, septicemic, and yes, the bubonic plague. These three plagues you know under one collective name, the Black Death. However... Details on the person who died, and where they were when they died, are vague at best. Some claim it was in Zimbabwe, when others say it was in Brazil, and the doctors claim it was from Siberia. It was almost impossible to gain enough information on the plague. Only those beyond the walls knew the truth. They titled it, The Plague of the Mind, and its diagnosis was since changed to placebo. I used to love the sound a drop of water makes after free falling at peak velocity from the heavens as it crashes into its destination with a complete and sudden certainty. On their own, each raindrop is no more powerful than a single tear or a melted snowflake. But if united under the right conditions, those drops can form record-breaking hurricanes or a super tsunami. When I was small, I used to go outside when it rained and stare up into the sky. I'd spend hours focusing on one single post-splash liquid bullet at a time, following its descent until its journey as a raindrop was over. I always tried to imagine what was next for the little drop, like where it would end up, where it had been. Perhaps at one time it had fallen on the tongues of my ancient ancestors or the head of our savior, Rain, without a doubt, is quite holy. Or at least it was. It used to remind me of life, until they came. No one knows what they are for sure, or where they came from, but it's understood that the rain has something to do with it. Some say they came from the inner earth civilization of Agartha, but no one really knows if that place exists. The religious are calling this a rapture, or some kind of God sanctioned plague. Since the outbreak of these things, I've just... I've started to realize that some of my own kind are just as much of a threat as these terrible creatures. Survivors had to be very careful. It started seven months ago, on a day now known as the Rainy Day. A storm rolled in from the north and eventually covered everything with torrential rainfall. It was as if the sky itself was a waterfall... The forceful precipitation of the surge alone left the country completely devastated. It rained about three weeks worth of hurricane force liquid in 24 hours. The city wasn't just flooded. In mere hours, our city was an island. The next day, it was speculated that 87% of my city's population had been lost. Those of us that survived the floods soon realized that the abundance of water left behind in the wake of the storm was the least of our worries. The lack of electricity, loss of communication with the rest of the world, food scarcity, were the least of our worries. Because after the rainy day, we had much bigger problems to deal with, and we couldn't stop the Lagonites. The Lagonites are all roughly nine feet tall, and of proportionate width. They're cloaked in what looks like some kind of oddly hooded cape, but the cape is not any kind of cloth I've ever seen. It's covered in long, black, coarse fur that seems to move and breathe on its own. I heard someone say that the capes around the Lagonites were not capes at all, but rather some kind of wings. Perhaps that's how they are able to fly and climb buildings. The hooded cloak also appears to be some kind of a defense mechanism, like an organic shield. The Lagonites themselves have no skin, or at least if they do, it's quite transparent. You can easily see the organs of the creature. Their anatomy is very similar to ours, but their brain is fluorescent blue and appears to be electrically charged, while their heart doesn't beat. It spins. Their faces are horrible, like a human and a bird combined. They have no mouth, and its place is an oddly shaped beak with multiple rows of sharp, long, dark teeth. Each lagonite has a big, black eye, In the top center of its face that never blinks. It pulses and oozes disgusting pus-like liquid, but the eye of a lagonite never closes. I think it helps them see in the dark. They arrived right after the sunset on the rainy day, marching on talons similar to that of an eagle. Hundreds of them. Arms and sharp claws hanging firmly by their side. They were like soldiers. They rose up from the deep pools of water that had already begun to flood the city on the first day. In uniform sync, they obliterated every living thing in their paths, all while making ghastly, guttural sounds painted with furious aggression. With their arrival was the sound of some kind of a horn, like a warning we hear every single time the sun sets. I remember the first time that ominous sound echoed through the air. We were all huddled on the top of a tall building, praying we'd survive the flood. None of our weapons seem to phase them. They're just too fast and impossibly strong. The only thing they don't seem to like is the sunlight. But I think that's because it's too bright for them to see. Perhaps their fur cloaks are some kind of protection against it. I don't know. Maybe not. Either way, no one has figured out how to stop them. Believe me, we've tried before, but we're no match for them. At sunrise, we, the survivors, move around freely. We search for food, medical supplies, new shelters, other survivors, if there are any. And at sunset, we hide. I usually take shelter in the trunk of an abandoned vehicle in a parking garage. It's safe enough, they never seem to check in there, but I can hear them roaming around in search of us at night. Sometimes I can even hear screams that signal the demise of another one of my kind. It seems we're not a very efficient race when we're not at the top of the food chain. We have to be careful too, the Laganites are not stupid, they are very clever. They don't kill everyone right away. Some of them get... Taken. Usually, no one sees them again, and if we do, it's normally a night trap created to draw out other survivors in the dark. I've heard the failure of many attempted rescues. It's never worth it, because it never works. So I ignore all cries for help that I hear after dark. If you're foolish enough to be out after sunset, and you've survived this far then you must have a death wish. And I don't. I am a survivor. Clean streets with cascading white skyscrapers piercing light clouds amidst the blue sky. A schoolyard filled to bursting at the fences with children and their teachers. A ball, colored red, is kicked back and forth between the kids. Their shorts and shirts were white, sometimes light gray. The children were having an early recess due to the special occasion of a missing student. For the first time in well over 32 years, East Middle School 126 had a student who was absent. The student in question was a boy named Alroy Buckley. The boy was quite large, with trimmed black hair, and a small but mean face. Last night at 21.42, he went missing from his home, breaking curfew. The security system identified he was missing, and the police were alerted. At 09.32, his body was discovered between two white and perfectly clean trash cans. His cranium was shattered with a blunt object, and multiple bones were broken beforehand. The cameras were blinded, and the assailant is still unidentified. The only lead is a strange yellow mask with a smiley drawn on the front. It was nailed to the wall in the center of the pink splatter. The scene was horrific, and investigators could not find a single lead. Due to this, security was doubled across the city, and schools were tripled Instantly, like cockroaches, they spread around the city to predetermined points where they would observe. East City 126, however, is a massive place, so holes and flaws in their observation were noticed. The school this boy attended was smack in the middle of one such leak. With a massive punt sound, the red ball was launched into the face of another student, causing Pink to spatter from her nose. The ball rocketed off her and over the fence. Teachers ran to the girl, only to stop when they noticed someone standing where the ball landed. A girl, no older than any of the students here, dressed in a bright yellow zip-up hoodie with forest green shorts and a sky blue shirt. Her face was concealed behind a yellow mask with pink splashes. A smiley was drawn onto it and now was washing down the mask. The children began to shudder, and the teachers froze in place. In one hand, a child held a dented, rusted, and pinkish metal bat, so severely dented that it had an almost hook-like body. In the other was an odd tube, dripping the pink liquid that spurted from the nose of the little girl. The child seemed to be a girl with very delicate hands, black, full hair that concealed the rest of her head and neck. Before the teachers could do anything, she sprinted for the first kid with her hand outstretched. The child turned and tried to flee, but she grabbed the back of his hair and pulled, yanking and jerking his head to and fro. She eventually kicked the back of his leg and mounted her foot on his head. With one mighty pull, she yanked out an invisible object, and Pink gushed from the back of his head as if she had bored right through to his brain. He didn't die, rather fell on the ground and began seizing. He tried to speak, but no words came. Her eyes cast down to another one, and she repeated the process before the first teacher ran at her, a tall man in a dark gray suit. She swung her bat into the side of his face with ferocious strength, popping his head like a balloon. When another teacher tried to apprehend her, she pummeled a bat into his stomach, up his chest, and scattered his skull across the pavement. She began to pull out the invisible handles faster. More viciously, until all that lay on the ground were twitching, nonverbal children, basking in pink fluids that came from their skulls. Amongst them, squirming hoses still gushed the pink fluid. Finally, the sirens sounded, and the children responded rather violently. Flopping and folding to their feet, the twitching children ran like animals for the source of the noise. squealing, screaming, giggling, laughing. Infectious, some would say. All but one child were running. The very first. Instead, the boy stared blankly at the sky. The assailant brushed past him and walked towards the rest of the kids. The fluid was finally drained from him and he could see clearly. Dark, wet concrete with murky grey skies. Rain that stings. And before him, he could see a little girl with a dented bat and a yellow hoodie with a valve on the back of her skull. She was walking towards a hulking mass of screaming, blood, tank fluid, and tangled wires. In the skies, he could see gargantuan containers that pierced the murky clouds. From these containers, he could see dozens of wires, tied down and clamped into the skull of every person he could see. Their faces were concealed with the same happy mask that little girl was wearing. Come to think of it, so was he. At first, the eggs were a minor nuisance, an isolated incident in a small town that made local news. A small farm became infected with some sort of web-covered egg clusters the size of beach balls. Several privately funded research teams came with the owner's permission to take samples and try and figure out where the eggs came from. News of the incident eventually died off as the non-disclosure agreement signed with the property owner took effect. The research teams took all the specimens, leaving the property owner with a handsome payout. The world had all but forgotten about the mysterious giant eggs before another cluster made the news, this time in the park of a major city. Three square blocks were quarantined and barriers were set up around the area. It seemed the CDC knew something everyone else didn't. Within 24 hours, another, bigger cluster was discovered in a field halfway around the world. Eight hours after that, seven more were reported four of which were in major cities. In the following hours and days, the egg clusters were infesting just about every major city and practically every town. As far as public information went, there was none on where the eggs came from or what was inside them. Task forces swept major cities, incinerating the eggs with flamethrowers. New clusters would pop up overnight. It was never ending. Within a few days... Some of the eggs began to open, they twitched, and slowly cracked at the top with a poof sound, and they slowly peeled themselves down in three pieces like a banana. The skin of the egg was soft and leathery when hatching, but almost impenetrable during gestation. These eggs carried no living creatures, but expelled some kind of a gas. At first, the public panicked as everyone thought it was a sort of poison. Fear-mongering drove people to rioting and violence. People hurt and killed each other over gas masks and supplies. It was later determined the gas was not directly harmful to humans, although the air became thick with the gray vapor. In the coming days, as more of these eggs opened up, the atmosphere became increasingly dense and carried a metallic tinge. Within the gray miasma, some sort of organic plant life started to bloom. White, gray vines climbed up the sides of buildings and houses, growing nearly two feet an hour, and covering structures. Tall, thin, tree-like poles containing no branches sprouted up everywhere. The tough black stalks that protruded even through concrete and asphalt were almost unbreakable without heavy equipment, and reached a maximum of 20 feet tall very quickly. What these spear-like trees effectively did was eliminate motor vehicle travel. They were so numerous you couldn't drive a car without wrecking in an instant. Fields of small orb-like succulents bloomed around the wilting trees and bushes of the old world. The new world is one humans are unable to understand nor revert. Something was essentially terraforming Earth. It was daily that new species of flora were discovered. Within a week people began to starve as their food and water supplies ran out. Without the road and train systems, shipping large quantities of food and supplies was impossible. Pre-cluster crops and plant life had all but died off by this point. Although the air wasn't lethal to humans, it was incredibly toxic to non-miasmic plants. Another odd discovery was that a strange yellow fuzz grew on the bodies of deceased humans. This was the only place the vivid mold was found. About twenty days after the first eggs opened, the remaining eggs began to hatch. These did contain living beings. Borers, as people took to calling them, were the worst thing to happen yet. They are about eighteen inches in diameter, with ten spindly jointed legs, arranged in a decagonal formation. Connecting and covering the legs is thick, leathery, grey skin. Borers are very flexible and practically all muscle. They can squeeze themselves under door frames and seem to detect people within short distances with the three antennae atop their featureless heads. What's worse is they can spread their skin-connected legs and float from high places like an umbrella. This is how most people fall victim to them, and why they're called borers. Once one of them lands on somebody, their body covers the person's head, and the ten legs hook under the jaw and into the back of the neck. This part of the process isn't fatal, although attempted removal will cause the legs to pierce deeper through the neck, which will kill the host. The creature now resembles a leathery bag covering the head of the victim. Next... A sharp appendage penetrates the person's skull and bores into their brain, spreading a stream of small tendrils that take over the body's functions. At this stage, the human host goes into a coma-like state. Incidents have been recorded of people with borers latched onto them, walking clumsily into the wilderness, but most lie where they fell. The incubation period usually lasts three days, after which the host does not survive. While most of the body becomes dehydrated, giving a mummified appearance, the chest cavity bloats immensely. On the third day, what has been growing in the host's body emerges in a bloody fashion. Almost all of the body's blood has been forced into the chest cavity for the growing creature to feed on. When the chest rips to release the struggling creature, an explosion of blood and viscera coats the area with a wet and audible pop. The emerging creatures are known as Stalkers, and like the rest of the cluster spawn, grow incredibly fast. Its six dilt-like legs, when fully grown, resemble the black pole trees that litter the landscape. This is by design. When fully grown, the Stalkers stand amongst the trees with the legs equally as tall in weight. The differences between the creature's legs and the branchless plants are almost imperceptible to one not paying close attention. Due to the thick, smoggy air, one is unable to see high enough to determine if the body of a stalker waits amongst the trees. But it is able to sense humans, and if an unfortunate soul walks into its vicinity, one of its specialized pedipalps hook the person through the abdomen. It drags them up into the fog two stories to its grey, leathery, car-sized body. The underbelly contains an opening, not unlike a mouth, that the stalker shoves its hooked catch into. The aperture closes the person inside, immediately and finally. Within the featureless body of the stalker are hundreds of short, half-an-inch teeth. Every so often the boneless, muscled body kneads, grinding the body of the live human within to create openings, mush bones, and continue bleeding. Walls of the toothy womb secrete a thick slime that seeps into the victim's wounds. This process continues for usually a day, sometimes more, after which the stalker dumps the person back to the ground. Sometimes still alive, sometimes not. If you're the person who's unlucky enough to have found yourself in this situation... You really hope the two-story fall finishes what the stalker did not. That slime that had been seeping into the open wounds of the unfortunate contains thousands of microscopic eggs. Incubation is 8 to 12 hours before as many eggs as space and sustenance would allow begin to hatch. Most people haven't survived the aforementioned process to this point, but it has happened. What hatches from and eviscerates the body are known as Corruptors, flying hummingbird-like creatures capable of incredible speed and mobility, roughly the size of a common swallow, but of the same wrinkly gray flesh that is common among the miasmic creatures. What is so terrifying about Corruptors, and what gives them their name, is the stingers attached to their underside, or more accurately, the venom they inject, If one finds a human and manages to inject said person, they are infected with an unknown disease. What this disease does is obliterate the calcium in the infected person's body. Bones and teeth begin to dissolve, blood is unable to clot, and muscles unable to contract. Core functions of the body, such as circulatory and respiratory systems, remain partially operational the person turns into what is basically a living pile of sloppy flesh. The last, and possibly most horrifying effect the corruptor's Venom has on the infected is the ability for them to be changed by the cluster's blighted atmosphere. These amorphous piles of human flesh morph into monstrous amalgamations. Their evolutionary development is predisposed by the regional environment, weather, and stress levels as well as genetics. From slug-like shrieking crawlers to incredibly fast predatory subhuman savages, the horrors of this world are constantly evolving, and every passing day is one day closer to humanity's end.